Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Mary Donahue, Assistant Publisher of Connecticut Explored. This summer, the Connecticut Historical Society is hosting an exhibition called Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow. It's a traveling show that originated at the New York Historical Society. The exhibition explores the struggle for full citizenship and racial equality that unfolded after the Civil War. Even though Northern states like Connecticut did not institute Jim Crow segregation by law, Discrimination and segregation were the norm in many public spaces, including elegant department stores like New York City's Macy's or Bloomingdale's and Hartford's G. Fox. In this episode, Dr. Tracy Parker of the University of Massachusetts with some editorial commentary from host Natalie Belanger talk about what department stores like G. Fox meant to consumers and retail workers alike and how they became sites of struggle in the civil rights movement. It's not hard to get a nutmegger to tell you about their memories of G. Fox. At the Connecticut Historical Society, where we have a large collection of G. Fox-related items, everything from store records to clothing to Christmas decorations, I'm used to chatting with visitors about their memories of shopping at, or working at, or both, the iconic department store in Hartford. It wasn't the only department store in town, but it dominated the scene, both because of its size and because of the outsized personality of its longtime president, Beatrice Fox Auerbach. The story of G. Fox is the classic American success story. Gerson Fox, an immigrant from Germany, began his career as a peddler, then established a storefront on Hartford's Main Street in 1847. A devastating fire in 1917 prompted the family to rebuild on a vast scale, creating a brand new modern building at 96 Main. The new store featured all the glamorous amenities that characterized big city department stores. Restaurants, a hair salon, modern decor, and of course, top-notch customer service. Gerson's granddaughter, Beatrice Fox Auerbach, took over the store in the 1930s. Beatrice continued the store's legendary focus on customer service, but she was also progressive on the issue of employee benefits. These included a five-day work week, retirement and pension plans, at-cost meals in the employee cafeteria, paid vacations, generous yearly bonuses, and an in-house hospital and pharmacy with the nursing staff that visited sick employees at home. Women found ample opportunities for advancement in management positions. G. Fox was ahead of its time on another front, too. Dr. Tracy Parker is a professor at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, who has studied department stores as a site of struggle in the civil rights movement in the 20th century. Parker recently published a book titled Department Stores and the Black Freedom Movement, Workers, Consumers, and Civil Rights from the 1930s to the 1980s. Some of her research was done at the CHS, where she examined oral histories and store records related to G. Fox and Company. She has shared her G. Fox findings with our members previously, and this spring she returned to CHS to talk about her new book. I want to begin today with a short story that illustrates aspects of the department store movement in the mid-20th century, so 1950s, 1960s. It was a warm June morning when black lunch counter manager Dorothea Davis once again made her way through the crowd of chanting protesters picketing W.T. Grant Company, a discount department store located in downtown Charlotte, North Carolina. Once inside, the silence was deafening. This was now routine, 
Few customers patronized the department stores since the Charlotte sit-in movement began in February 1960, leaving Davis and her co-workers with little to do. Today, however, would be different. As she wiped down the lunch counter, preparing to open it to the handful of customers who were willing to cross the picket line, the store manager approached Davis and explained that it would soon open, albeit discreetly, its whites-only counter to African-Americans. He continued, quote, we're also thinking about hiring a black person as a sales lady, and I thought about you because you've made so much progress and have been a great manager of this lunch counter, end quote. Davis hesitated. She vividly recalled how the store and its white employees and customers treated African-Americans, workers, customers, and now protesters with utter disrespect and contempt. But she also understood that taking the job would advance the race. After much consideration and discussion with protesters who promised to support her, Davis accepted the job offer. Grant's decision to end Jim Crow practices was by no means an act of altruism. Rather, it was the direct result of black protests built on worker-consumer cooperation. Over the course of the five-month demonstration, African-American store workers and protesters forged an alliance and together they created a movement that forced the collapse of Jim Crow and public accommodations and employment. News of the desegregation of the lunch counter, although initially delayed to prevent any additional conflict, was celebrated in the local and national press. However, all news coverage of the Charlotte sit-in demonstration ignored the integration of W.T. Grant's sales force, an equally important accomplishment of this movement. Several things are of note. First, the Charlotte sit-in and others like it show why department stores became prime location for civil rights. Second, the sit-in movement illustrates the presence and importance of black worker-consumer alliances to projects of racial integration. Third, sit-in movements were central to the emergence of a modern black middle class. And by modern here, I mean a class identity grounded in consumer capitalism, not industrial capitalism. So first, why department stores? Department stores in the 20th century are unlike anything that we probably have today, right? Um, these were grand locations. These were locations that exuded glamour. They made one feel glamorous just by being in these sites of consumption. And so what it's important to remember is that we're going from a moment in the late 19th century to the 20th century where we're going from dry goods stores to department stores. Dry goods stores would have been, um, for those of you who don't know, um, they would have been bare bones stores, almost like plantation stores, where one buy those, buys their goods, but you don't stay all day and spend your time, right? These new departments of the 20th century are meant to be social clubs for white middle-class women in particular. Um, the idea is that once you're inside, you stay all day. So they offered nurseries, they offered spa treatments, you know, you get your hair done, you have a restaurant, there's tea rooms, there's a piano player. Um, Wanamakers in Philadelphia had a band who would regularly play. Um, Macy's in New York City, for example, when Amos and Andy radio show was big, who would stop all the music and play the Amos Andy radio st show over the loudspeaker to ensure that nobody went home to get close to their radio, right? The idea is that you wanted people to stay and shop as long as possible. Um, and for 
those who were building these early 20th century department stores, they were considered to be safe places for, black, for white women, right? Women at this moment are not supposed to be in the public sphere. So while their husbands are at work, women are supposed to go to the department store and relax and spend their husband's paycheck. Um, but at the same time, these are also places that are touting themselves to be democratic in that everyone is welcome to enter, regardless of race, ethnicity, age, gender, country of origin. And at the same time, however, they also obeyed the tenets of Jim Crow. In that, these are places that are designed with white middle-class women in mind. And they also want to ensure then that when black people did enter and shop in these spaces, that it was clear that they remain marked as second-class citizens. Um, and for white working-class women, ideally you work in a department store hoping to become middle-class one day, right? So you either do this by working your way up and becoming maybe the manager of your counter, but Ideally, as many of these women dreamed, and if you've seen the film It from the early 20th century, you wanted to marry one of your rich male customers, um, and then you would be on the other side of the counter being waited on. African Americans, however, were hired only as maintenance workers and elevator operators. These are jobs that are the antithesis of modernity and importance. They are jobs that really put them into a service position that sort of replicates the type of service work that many of them have in working as domestics in other people's homes. Black customers were refused service at eateries, beauty shops, prohibited from trying on and returning clothes, and they were often denied credit. In many ways, the department store is unlike any other public accommodations of its period, right? So such as swimming pools or hotels, um, in that those places of accommodations held a very hard and fast color line meaning they just didn't serve African-Americans, right? In department stores, one could still enter and be waited on. The trouble is, is that when, you're, when you enter as an African-American prior to the civil rights movement and you're waiting to be waited on, even if you're the first in line, who, the white person who comes up behind you is going to be waited on first. Um, oftentimes they're given uneven treatment, meaning that you could go in and be ignored for a while and have to sit and wait for forever just to get your purchases done. In Baltimore, for example, where, I, where I'm from, my grandmother would tell me how there were certain department stores where they would only serve African Americans only when you were working on behalf of your white, per, of your white employer. Mm -hmm. So her great aunt, for example, would purchase clothes on behalf of the woman who she served as a maid. But in order to do so, she would have to go to the back door of this department store, make her purchases, and she's never allowed to step foot into the department store itself. The second thing that's important to remember of this story with Dorothea Davis are the worker-consumer alliances that allow her to eventually integrate sales work at W.T. Grants. Worker-consumer alliances were central to challenging race discrimination in the consumer sphere. African Americans understood that individual enrichment was intimately tied to collective advance, while consumer empowerment was bound to worker advancement. Together, workers and consumers proved to be enormously effective in fighting race discrimination. 
Even before the onslaught of, onslaught of black protest, African-American workers and consumers had developed relationships that were crucial to challenging Jim Crow. For example, in Charlotte, black school teachers dressed in their finest attire regularly held midday work and social gatherings at the black lunch counter at W.T. Grant's. The black wait staff set the counters using spare linens from the white lunch counter, served hot meals on china plates, despite rules, store rules to the contrary, and provided customers with skilled, exceptional service. The special treatment, this type of consumer experience extended to teachers was important to the construction and affirmation of modern middle-class status. Among contemporaries and scholars alike, Despite the economic distance between teachers and working class laborers, whereby laborers could earn more than teachers yet were not of the middle class, black teachers, along with ministers, have been hailed as the backbone of the black middle class and an important source of black leadership. Dr. Parker is about to discuss the way that the integration of department store sales forces affected African Americans' ability to participate as consumers. But first, I want to break in a bit to talk about the integration of G. Fox. The store was one of the first in the United States to hire black sales workers and executives, starting in 1942, a couple of decades before the sit-in movement began. G. Fox employed blacks as elevator operators and maintenance staff, but in 1942 began to employ black executives and sales workers as well. Three years later, it hired Anaretha Shaw to manage its personnel of color. A few years later, Sarah Murphy, a former Women's Army Corps member and a graduate of NYU's Personnel Administration Program, took over that job. She also worked part-time in the lingerie department. Dr. Parker notes in her book that this assignment was especially important because of traditional white reluctance to allow African Americans to handle their intimate clothing. Dr. Parker notes that G. Fox's integration of its sales force seems to have occurred rather quietly, without much protest. The one story she cites indicates that there was some tension playing out on the sales floor. Delia Griffin, an African-American saleswoman at G. Fox, recalled in an oral history one customer who didn't want Griffin to ring her sales up, presumably because Griffin was African-American. In Griffin's telling, the customer tried to impress Griffin by stating, I'm big someone from down south, to which Griffin replied, well, I'm some big somebody from up north. They achieved high levels of education, devoted their lives to uplifting the race through the dissemination of their education to future generations, adopted sober and pious behavior, and dressed conservatively. Like middle-class professionals, project themselves as respectable members of the black middle class to fortify themselves against sexual predators and combat degrading racist stereotypes. They were often celebrated for enjoying a varied cultural life and having a broad scope for intellectual and professional development. In other words, when black waitresses furnished outstanding service and special amenities, their customers, as well as themselves, were able to perform and act in the consumer republic and gain a sense that they belonged in the elegant modern world of downtown stores specifically and American consumer culture and democracy generally. Black customers were presented with an opportunity to taste and perform the defining characteristics of luxury consumption, including abundance, prestige, superiority, dignity, and equality. Being served in this manner was also testimony to black and white customers alike, as well as the store management, that respectable blacks were of a discerning clientele that belonged and should feel valued in all departments, 
Among black waitresses, it engendered feelings of superiority and confidence as skilled workers. During department store campaigns, such as the Charlotte sit-in movement, the lunch counter remained a place where black workers and consumers developed their relationship and fashioned a middle-class identity. The counter was a central on-site location where African-American customers and store workers planned and carried out department store campaigns. Protesters, as historians have rightly documented, were fixated on the democratization of consumption, as consumption had been enthroned as the route to democracy and citizenship in the 20th century. While waiting to be served, however, protesters formed an alliance with black store workers and brought in the movement's breadth and scope to win concessions around consumption and employment. The bond forged between waitresses and customers was not only led, not only led to the desegregation of lunch counters, but also the integration of sales work. Selling in the city of Charlotte, for example, African Americans held only a very small portion of these jobs. At W.T. Grant, waitresses complained to protesters about their work conditions, especially their inability, despite repeated efforts, to secure higher paying, quality, rewarding jobs and sales. So what initially began as a movement to force the integration of segregated spaces and stores grew to an organized endeavor to secure full participation and equal treatment in the marketplace on behalf of customers and workers. Because of this, management eventually approached Davis about being a sales lady. Now, when they approach her about being a sales lady, they offer the lamp department. The lamp department by this point in time had been closed for years, and it existed in the basement of the store. Right, What's left is actually just lamps they hadn't sold in the basement of the store, out of the sight of customers. And so when they approach Davis, she's really reluctant. In her oral history, she explains that she doesn't want to do it. She's fearful that if you know anything about the Montgomery bus boycott, she's thinking of black women like Rosa Parks, who when she did take action, civil rights action, she and her husband lost their jobs, right? Her family were under subject to death threats. They're, run out, they're eventually run out of town and she moves to Detroit. So she's really concerned that if she takes this job, it might, it's, going to, it's not worth her life. But it's at the lunch counter where she sits and she starts to talk with protesters and she asks, should I do this? And what they do is that they promise her that if she takes this job, she, they're going to they're gonna support her. Whatever she needs, they're going to be there for her. So she reluctantly takes the job. Now, the job, as I mentioned, is in the lamp department. She goes, has to be all the way in the basement in the far back of the store. They hadn't sold lamps in years. And she quickly becomes the number one sales worker at W.T. Grant's <laughs> selling lamps. Right? Not only does she sell lamps, but she also decides that she's going to be sort of a buyer of sorts. And so she goes through the store catalogs and she figure out, figures out items that she believes that her black customers would be willing or excited to purchase. Um, she tells stories of how African-American customers showing their support would come down to the lamp department with a lipstick, mm -hmm. right? And, per and make sure that she got the sale for that one lipstick. Um, and so it's this consume worker-consumer alliance that continues well beyond the sit-in movement, right? She becomes, as I mentioned, the top sales worker she ends up leaving, and she goes to a dress shop in downtown Charlotte, and they all follow. 
And she does similar work at this dress shop where she realizes that when black women get dressed up, they want to be dressed up, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they want certain colors and they want items that look like those that are being sold or being worn by Lena Horne and who's wearing them in the pages of Ebony or Jet magazine. Um, and so she's, she's not only selling goods to them, but she's selling goods that appeal to a black aesthetic. And not only does she sell on these things, but she becomes that saleswoman that they had been looking for for decades, right? So when they come into the store, she remembers their names and she's made notes of their previous purchases. And so she's able to tell them, we just got this in, you know, based off what, you know, you just purchased this particular lamp, why not purchase this couch? That'll go with the lamp, right? So what she did was that she reinitiated the use of interpersonal relationships to sell goods. And this had been a technique of selling that had lost favor, especially after World War II, when increasingly with automation, with new technology, the idea, and with increased advertising, the onus more and more fell on the consumer to figure out what they wanted, not the sales worker to help them figure out what they wanted and needed. Black sales workers also went above and beyond their job descriptions to ensure, to safeguard racial fairness. Some bent or broke store rules that they deemed unfair or discriminatory. For example, when one worker in the customer service department at Macy's learned that black customer files were being flagged with a special code to indicate race, so oftentimes Macy's and other stores would put a particular a star, like a black star, or something on um, customers' records, she made sure they were all messed up and got rid of all of the indications. They were so messed up that the store just never bothered to try to do it again. Other African-American employees protected customers from being scammed by retailers or violated by store security. For example, while working at Newman's in Richmond, Ora Lomax went to bat for a young African-American man who had been falsely accused of stealing and subsequently beaten up by an African-American security guard. After overhearing the security guard tell a white customer, quote, this is the way that you have to treat, um, N-words, insert racial epithet, she filed a complaint with the Richmond Human Relations Commission. As a result of her actions, Newman was fired Newman's fired both the security guard and Lomax. Lomax, however, was hot rehired the next day after management reflected on her good sales and reputation in the store's coat department. While department store campaigns integrated the space and services of stores, saleswomen like Davis and Lomax empowered African Americans through consumption. They enabled black customers to perform and embody wealth, if only in the confines of the store's four walls. Harkening back to skilled selling, Early black sales workers provided customers of color with shopping experiences traditionally extended to wealthy whites. They remembered customer names and previous purchases. They acted as personal stylists and servants. In newly integrated stores, many black customers celebrated the difference in treatment. No longer treated as second-class citizens or forced to locate and purchase an item on their own, many testified that they were now warmly greeted advised on their purchases and gently coaxed into buying complimentary items by a highly skilled salesperson of color. Now the third item, or the third, I guess, moral or of the story when it comes to Dorothea Davis, 
is that the department store movement facilitated the rise of a modern black middle class. Um, it's important to note that oftentimes those who are integrating the space of these department stores are those are college students, right? Those who are educated, who would be considered those of the middle class or to be about or aspiring to be of the middle class. Um, and so consumption and working in these places confirm their, will eventually confirm their class position. The department store movement helped to dismantle racialized patterns of labor and consumption, and in the process facilitated the emergence of a modern black middle class. The department store has historically been a key agent in the formation of the white middle class and promised to do the same for African Americans in the 20th century. The white middle class emerged in the three decades prior to the Civil War. As the market revolution fueled the proletarianization of master artisans, skilled craft workers, and small capitalists, and the rise of non-manual work in sales, clerical, and managerial occupations. The ranks of the white middle class swell just as department stores ushered in a new world of retailing in the mid to late 19th century. Its members, a high percentage of whom were white native and foreign born women, perform mental rather than physical labor in stores and offices, holding out hope that with industriousness and loyalty, they would be promoted to manager, become an entrepreneur, or secure a husband and economic security. They consumed respectable, a word synonymous with middle class, material goods and leisure activities such as bicycle excursions and hiking and picnicking in local parks. They were trained and disciplined to erase the signs of working class origins and apply a veneer of middle class or elite culture. In New York, for example, some of the department stores would train their sales workers to speak a little bit of French. Um, so when customers go to purchase, they would make it sound just a bit fancier, right? Everything in French just sounds just way more exciting. Um, they borrowed prestige from their employer and customers, as well as the firm itself, and they deprived, they derived their power from the direct supervision of other workers. The department store not only facilitated the growth of professional and white-collar workers, it served this new population. The store played a crucial role in determining the essentials of middle-class life and aspiration. It shifted the way Americans saw material goods. It enticed customers with environments of luxury, desire, exoticism, service ideology, and easy credit, and convinced them what had been occasional luxuries were in fact everyday necessities for middle-class standard of living and sharing an American democracy. It sounds a lot like Amazon. Um, <laughs> The spectrum of African-American class and internal relations, however, was incongruent with white class boundaries and characteristics. Although from the late 19th and 20th, mid 20th century, both were redefined in terms of consumption rather than means of production. The decades following the Second World War marked fundamental transformation in African-Americans' relation to the economy and consumer society and facilitated the emergence of a sizable black middle class. A demand for black labor in urban industries and the mechanization of farms, which displaced and released black agricultural workers from the sharecropping system, encouraged millions of African Americans to migrate to cities. Here in their new urban environments, blacks took advantage of expanding educational opportunities, dramatic post-war growth of industrial and white-collar employment, and the relaxation of racial employment barriers. These gains permitted an appreciable number of African Americans to move out of low skill, low wage work into skilled and white collar jobs. 
Black urbanization and occupational advances accelerated the fashioning of institutional, entrepreneurial, market-driven, and, and national forms of Black culture, and collectively shaped an unprecedented Black consumer consciousness in the post-war era. Most notably, the founding and development of Ebony Magazine presented upwardly mobile African Americans with the tools and grammar for their post-migration experience. One matching new realities of urban challenge, societal complex complexity, and material change. Ebony did not sell out blacks, argues historian Adam Green. Instead, it sold, new race, new, sold the race new identities, a process that encouraged imagination of a black national community and made new notions of collective interests and politics plausible. But all of this should not suggest that the department store was inconsequential to the formation of the modern black middle class. In fact, the contradictions of the department store provided African Americans with an available and legitimate recourse for challenging race discrimination in the marketplace and acquiring the material base needed to climb the socioeconomic ladder. Leveraging their work consciousness, one that flourished as a result of New Deal politics and new consumer consciousness, black activists built worker-consumer alliances to pressure merchants to adopt fair employment and customer service practices. The result was the making of a sizable contingent of sales and clerical workers of color who now had the freedom and economic means to consume material accoutrements and services in department stores that marked them as middle-class citizens. The movement itself influenced other businesses to integrate their workforces, thus helping expand the job opportunities available to blacks beyond domestic and menial work. Today, department stores are less relevant to shoppers and therefore less profitable. Um, I'm sure all of you have heard it's after every Christmas season, there's always a conversation about how many department stores will be closing this year. Um, as Sears is probably the number one that comes to mind in trying to sort of hold on and unravel this knot of bankruptcy um, and decline. Oftentimes, as we're finding, is that customers prefer to do most of their shopping online, right? So Amazon Bing. And now that they gave everybody one-day shipping, I'm going to be buying even more, I'm sure. Um, department store sales jobs, in particular, are now considered dead-end jobs. They are considered lower-middle-class jobs at best. They are stripped of their former responsibilities, status, and prestige. Sales workers are cashiers and stock people for all intents and purposes. One historian observed, quote, like other service industry workers, salespeople have experienced a continuation of the trend toward part-time work, pressures for increased productivity, closer surveillance through computers and industrial espionage, and low pay, end quote. The nature of consumption has also changed, or more accurately deteriorated, from full-service shopping to self-service shopping. No longer is all the merchandise housed in glass cases or out of reach of customers, unless you're going to the Louis Vuitton section at Bloomingdale's. Um, no longer are sales workers dressed in all black or on their Sunday best. No longer are salespeople experts in the art of selling and the merchandise they sell. And no longer are these stores places where visitors have, had, have their every desire and whim fulfilled. Now customers are more knowledgeable about identifying and locating their desired merchandise, in large part because of modern advertising, and are thus less reliant on sales clerks to assist them through the shopping experience. The struggle for racial 
Equality in work and consumption also continues in the retail industry. Racial discrimination in the retail industry persists in ways that are consistent with early forms of discrimination, not hiring African-Americans in skilled and status positions, and limiting black customers' mobility in and access to retail institutions. Discrimination is also shaped by and reflective of the changing nature of American retailing, employment, and consumption in the 21st century, in that African Americans are hired in sales vis-a-vis -vis cashiering and denied managerial and, super and supervisory positions, for example. But what we do know, however, is that 20th century department stores offered African Americans a site where they could effectively challenge racial discrimination and segregation and advance the economic agenda of the civil rights movement. They also provided them with a place where they could secure modernity and middle-class citizenship. Thank you. We're about to wrap up, but at the end of the talk, someone in the audience asked about Beatrice Fox Auerbach's motivation for integrating her sales force so early. They also asked about how the store's eventual purchase by the May Company and its opening of suburban branches affected its hiring and its customer base. Dr. Parker had the following to say. So yeah. it is true. She's actually very, she's very invested in having women have managerial positions and African-Americans being in white collar jobs. That seems to be, and it's unclear to me, even in the records, where this comes from. Um, because oftentimes I can pinpoint that it's for a financial reason. It's often for a financial reason. Who am I kidding? Um, it's usually because they believe that it'll bring in profit or it'll make them look better. But she seems to have it from like very within that she has a very democratic understanding of how she wants her store to run. When the store does move to the suburbs, it becomes, the labor force becomes much more whiter than it is in the downtown space. Um, As were the shoppers. That's exactly right. Um, and I suspect, so and I don't have... In the records, I didn't find anything that spoke explicitly to it. But what I expect is that this goes back to somewhat of your question, that after the Second World War, there's a desire to keep trying to court the white middle class, right? And so you move department stores where they are now living. And so as a result, whether you intentionally or whether it's just the byproduct of it, what you're doing is sort of reconsolidating race discrimination, um, and you were going back to a practice where most of your customers and your workers are white, white middle class. Um, and that's, you know, the idea is that you think that the white middle class has all of this money, especially in the post-war boom, <coughs> to spend, and that is your primary concern. To learn more about this topic, you can visit the Connecticut Historical Society this summer to view the exhibition Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow. I'm Natalie Belanger with Grading the Nutmeg. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Dr. Tracy Parker and Natalie Belanger, Adult Programs Manager at the Connecticut Historical Society. Dr. Parker's new book is Department Stores and the Black Freedom Movement, Workers, Consumers, and Civil Rights from the 1930s to the 1980s, published by the University of North Carolina Press. This episode was produced by Natalie Belanger and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. To hear more episodes of Grading the Nutmeg, subscribe on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, SoundCloud, 
or at gratingthenutmeg.lipson.com. And for more great Connecticut history stories, subscribe to Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history at ctexplore.org. This is Mary Donahue, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.